This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Miroslav Volf was born on September 25th, 1956 in Osijek, Croatia. We as a um, very small group of Pentecostals, my father was a Pentecostal minister, were living under what we experienced as an oppressive boot of a communist, um, relatively mild, but nonetheless communist regime. The broader community was predominantly Roman Catholic, but even among Protestants, Pentecostals were, as Wolf would later put it, a minority of a minority. Not just small, but kind of a weird group of uh, people. But interestingly enough, it was a, a holiness Pentecostalism. And mm-hmm. as it turned out, in my case, holiness, and that's partly because, mainly because of my parents, who were extraordinary spiritual human beings, not, not in a sense that they were total exemplars of holiness, but there was kind of an honesty about the, the spiritual life and search and striving towards something, willingness to admit one's mistakes, and hence never regulated but strictly by rules, but always by the sense of both the spirit and divine love. From what I understand of your biography, your dad spent some time in a, in a labor camp, is that correct? Yeah, that's where he came to faith. He was originally, um, as a kid, he attended with his mother Baptist church and walked away from faith in his teens. And then as, as an innocent man, he truly was, uh, from whatever perspective you look at uh, look at it, he ended up in um, not just concentration camp, but, but first on the death march, mm. because as he was conscripted as a um, 18-year-old uh, kid into regular Croatian army where he was uh, he was a baker. He tried to defect, was caught, and almost lost his life uh, in the course of interrogations. Then, uh, before the end of the war, defected again, left his unit, and then, by strange set of circumstances, found himself by those same socialists with whom he sympathized uh, put on the death march and basically they were they were marching them around in order to starve them uh, and kill them off and mm-hmm. that's where he found god or he would say that's where god found him mm-hmm. there was a guy there who talked to him about heaven and hell and he rebelled, rebelled in a, a profound way against that, and yet came to experience God's love in the midst of that uh, that hell. And this was for him. This was a very powerful experience, and for me, it always became a symbol of how you can be in utterly desperate circumstances, and circumstances were desperate, and yet at the same time embracing the love of God, the world can become, in a sense, new. Everything's old, and everything is new at the same time. It's an incredible thing. Of course, much of it needs to change, and he was desiring for it to change, but that shift was there. So it was immensely powerful, and to me, always as a kind of vivid representation of what the faith can do what God can do. Oh, that's a profound thought, this idea that the world can become new at any given time. It's a powerful counterbalance to the, the kind of sin, you know, pervasive cynicism that I think affects not just the, the culture broadly, but the church, you know, the church even in particular right now. Yeah, and, and, and in some ways that it can get that the newness, that there's a crack from which, through which newness can come and be 
in transformative way experienced while we are still in the midst of the old, in the grip of the old, in a, in in the clutches, if you want, of the old, and that to me was a, was a, was an extraordinary um, experience of my of my dad. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him, and everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes, and what it means it's hard to know. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and my guest today is theologian Miroslav Volf. We talk about how his work led him from Croatia to the United States, the development of his theology and understanding of public engagement, and the need he sees for renewed witness in the present age. So stay with us. Wolf's father survived the labor camp, returned to society, and shortly after felt a call to ministry, where he served in the Pentecostal church for the next 35 years. That was the spiritual environment of his home growing up. How much of an influence, given the global perspective and the, the emphasis on reconciliation that's in your work and the ecumenical sense of your work, you know, do you look at your origin story, in a sense, as a way of inspiring that desire to sort of bring the church together because of that minority experience? I think there, there's something to it. In some ways, if you're a minority, just like if you come from a minority culture where where only a few million people or even maybe less speak your language, you're forced to learn. Uh, if you want to communicate with the world, you're forced to learn another language, right? I was forced to uh, learn English and, uh, and German if I was going to communicate with the rest of the world. So in some sense, there is a impetus in smaller communities to bridge into the larger world, but it can go different ways. Right, one can get oneself uh, self-enclosed in one's own environment because one feels a threat from from outside, and mm-hmm. such threat indeed was there. But again, I, I think partly because of my my father, my family, other people who were there, there was this sense of having something that is in faith, having a gem that is a gem not just for us but is a gem, unrecognized gem for the wider world. So the sense of not just evangelism, but sense of reaching out to the wider environment was very important. And I think it was important for us to reach also to Orthodox Church, to Catholic Church. Both of these were persecuted under communists. Uh, and so we were in this community of the persecuted. <laughs> and I think that partly uh, does explain my desire to reach out in ecumenically and in other ways. Like many a preacher's kid, Wolf found himself as a teenager in a period of rebellion against the faith of his parents. You know, the kind of haughty, full of uh, himself, a little teenager, looks at his dad's uh, work and especially his dad's church. And, and there are not very many educated or smart people or even very psychologically healthy 
people in that in that group. There, there are wonderful saints there also, but there were there were uh, characters, strange characters. You know, I could go on and uh, and I, I I see them all. They, their their faces are these weird, sometimes weird characters. And I always thought mm-hmm. uh, my dad is wasting his life uh, ministering to those char- to, to the characters of this sort. It took me a while later on to to discover. Oh, what an incredible thing it is to devote one's life to helping people who are so much on the margins. Their lives are about uh, to break and somebody's there to attend to their needs. And suddenly I discovered a saint in my dad for having done what I uh, uh, earlier derided him about doing. So I had this sense of, uh, you know, this beautiful thing that you're giving me, but I I, I can do nothing uh, with the gospel, nothing with the gospel with these people, nothing with the gospel in the setting in which I find my uh, myself. That's going to take me nowhere. And so I, I had a kind of a little bit of time of exploration, and then I ended up being invited to translate for this group of Swedish young people uh, as they were doing missionary work in former Yugoslavia and travel with them. And it's there that I came to kind of personal faith. I realized that that one could be cool and a believer as well. <laughs> and it's, it's really strange, right? I, th- that's maybe all that I needed to my shame and chagrin, <laughs> that, that it's the coolness of um, being possible to be cool and uh, a believer, that it, that took that in order to open up space uh, for me to, to enter. And then slowly I was, uh, I was getting deeper into faith and uh, soon became the only openly professing kid in my high school. And that got me then to reading and trying to figure out what is it that I'm believing and how am I supposed to behave and how do I, how should I speak to these people? So that made it a little theologian. Did you know right away that that was what you wanted to kind of invest your life in? Uh, uh, fairly early on and partly because of my brother-in-law who was starting um, a school and this was a Bible school or kind of small seminary and clearly we had to have people indigenous people doing doing the work rather than missionaries coming from outside and so you know I was slotted okay so if you if you work hard and, and study you can do systematic theology and that's what I did I thought wow that seems like a good idea I'm gonna have a I'm gonna study philosophy I'm gonna study uh, theology I'm gonna get PhD in those uh, in both of these and then I'm gonna teach so that was mm. that was set when I was about 17. Wow, that's great! Crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, a few people when they're seventeen get to end up doing what they. What they and the, they the funniest do. thing is that I haven't regretted a single time, single day, single mm. hour, the uh, choice that I that I've made. I mean, it's I, I consider myself so incredibly blessed. I think that that's a that's a that's a trite uh, statement, in some ways, but in in this original sense of uh, of being given something that um, uh, is kind of, uh, I don't deserve, but it's just there that uh, that I, I get to enjoy. I think blessed is absolutely the right word. I mean, the impact your work, like it's had an impact on the global church, and there aren't very many people who, certainly who are living, who get to say that. So it's an incredible story. And the legacy of your dad is such a beautiful part of it, that he suffered and came out of it. And like you said, he was this saint, you know, serving these kind of 
maybe societally on the fringe? I, I think, uh, I mean, uh, I sometimes sp speak of my, my nanny who had profound influence on me also, but my mother was very important uh, in some ways to, uh, in the deep existential and reflective engagement with faith. Uh, my dad was a doer. He was not a talker. He delivered a very good sermon, but uh, as many introverts, he would rather not talk. And so I remember traveling with him for four hours, driving in the car. If I didn't say a word, he would not say a word. So, <laughs> so, so, and of course, my mother was more talkative as I was, and, and she was, of course, always frustrated in, in their marriage about this. They loved each other, and they were just such, such a unit, incredible unit spiritually, but she didn't have anybody to talk to. And so I became conversation partner for her, and that has proven to be immense blessing to me because she had this, this very deep, introspective, beautifully honest way of dealing with our, her own struggles, uh, and struggles there were, spiritual struggles. And uh, I've benefited immensely from uh, conversations with her. Wolf studied philosophy, theology, and classical Greek at the University of Zagreb in Croatia. And he went on to pursue graduate studies at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. For his PhD work, he happened upon an opportunity to study with one of the 20th century's most influential theologians, Jürgen Moltmann. <laughs> I sometimes tease him, uh, but it was not a very hands-on experience while I was a student. I always say it was good to have studied with him, not to study with him. <laughs> he was way too busy. He had 19 doctoral students. He was traveling around the world. Uh, he had no time. So basically, there's zero supervision. Uh, but he proved then very important. We became friends, and he proved very important in my life, more, more observing and having read quite a bit of his theology. When I graduated, I asked him, so what do I do now? How do I write? I did my PhD. That turned out to be okay. I did fairly well. And so, but then what's, what's next? And I, I will never forget what he said to me. He said to me, Miroslav, take something that moves people and shine the light of the gospel on it. And I thought, that, that seems like a, like a really great advice. And that's what, what I see him doing is kind of very, being very interested in what's happening in the world and somehow integrating it into his sphere of concern so as to speak to that. And so that's the roughly advice that I followed and also some of the example of his own work that I have then learned from. After his PhD work, he moved back to Croatia where he taught in Zagreb. A few years later, he began to split his time between Croatia and Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And while at Fuller, ideas began to develop that would become one of his most important and influential works, Exclusion and Embrace. Fuller was the place, and they began to emerge because I received an invitation to speak in Germany on uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that meant, in my own uh, setting, it meant um, fall of the bipolar world and the beginning of the war in former Yugoslavia. So then the question for me became, how do I address this war around group identities? Of course, there were 
war was about power, war was about uh, economics, uh, but it was also about identity, religious and cultural identity. And that became then the topic that I was trying to to wrestle. The embrace of the prodigal son uh, is uh, what became for me then the kind of metaphor through which to see both how the negotiation of identities happens and the grace that is essential to proper negotiation of identities. And that was what I saw in that story. What became significant for me is to ask the question, what happened to the father after the prodigal left? What happens to the father's identity after the prodigal left? Suddenly the father of happy household had to become father of uh, a son who has uh, taken uh, uh, his inheritance uh, and left. The father could have become very, very bitter. He could have uh, disavowed the son, but rather you you have a journey of identity transformation that was inflicted upon him, but that he willingly accepts so that he can be the father, not just of the healthy household, but also of the prodigal who is in the far country. And when the embrace happened, it was possible because of the shift of identity that occurred in the father and the shift of identity that was guided by, driven by a sense of not wanting to give up on the son on account of love for the son. Mm-hmm. And the contrasting figure is the older brother. And you have the older brother who uh, operates uh, as sometimes older brothers uh, do on the basis of, of, of rules. Uh, the rules have been broken. And uh, since rules have been broken, he cannot be integrated into the community or something different needs to happen and not feast for this wanderer if he's going to return. And we, unless we've been uh, too familiar and read this story too long, uh, most of us sympathize with the concern of the older brother, that there's something um, profoundly unfair in this whole activity of the father of embracing uh, the prodigal in such, such a way. And this unfairness of the father, whose other name is Grace, became central to me for the mode in which we go about negotiating identity so that they don't become hardened against others, so that uh, if you break the rule, you're out. If you keep the rule, you, you, you're in. But rather that relationship to another is prior to any construction of the other as good or bad or as deserving or not deserving. And that was, uh, in a sense, expression of the unconditionality of God's love, which is the very character of God, as I understand uh, God. And so uh, out of the very heart of the Christian faith, I could then try to figure out how do I negotiate personal identities in context of tensions, in context of, but just in context of ordinary negotiating ordinary life as well. And uh, how do I make sure that the bridges are always there so that identities can come together without dissolving, but nonetheless being themselves and being together? It has fascinating kind of social implications because obviously you're looking at this when you're writing it and you know the 20th century is so tumultuous 
you know, in the aftermath of the war, you know, the great wars, the aftermath of communism, the soil for enmity was was fertile. And so if I understand, you know, if, if I understand the project correctly, the idea is that it's essential for Christian witness to sort of lead the way in saying we're willing to forego our sense of identity as the victimized in order to to bring around a reconciliation that can can move forward. I would say uh, maybe just slightly slightly adjusted uh, and say mm-hmm. we are f- um, we can name ourselves as having been victims without that fact precluding us desiring and wanting communion with the other. I think that best illustrated with the idea of forgiveness. In forgiveness entails, in my reading of it, it's it's a complicated story, obviously, and many people have different views about it, uh, including kind of broader broader culture. But in my my view, forgiveness has two closely related moments. Uh, One moment is the naming of the wrong as wrong. That is to say, I cannot forgive something that has not been in the act of forgiveness itself, identified as a wrong. Then the heart of forgiveness is not letting that count against the wrongdoer, right? So mm-hmm. you can you can see that forgiveness does not imply kind of disregard of victimization, but rather victimization notwithstanding, I seek and enact communion with the other person. And that, that's what I, uh, I think is at the, at the heart also of the gospel um, mm-hmm. in terms of God's relationship uh, to us. And I think at the heart of, I would say, Christian vision of attending to transgression in uh, interpersonal and in a limited and qualified way in kind of cultural and political uh, domain. I don't want to f- too quickly identify what happens at the in- what can happen and what happens at the interpersonal level and mm-hmm. what can happen at intercultural, intergroup and political level. Those are analogous processes but not identical. Interesting. Yeah, so when you think on the more societal or, or political level, how do you think that changes for Christian witness? And I, I ask that in particular because, you know, obviously we're in a time of tremendous upheaval, political polarization, the rise of nationalism, protests about racial injustice and police violence and brutality. So obviously we're at a time where there's, there's a lot of grievance, you know, in our culture. Do you feel like this work and this perspective has something to say to our particular moment? Well, I feel that it does. Um, I, I realize also that that's not the only possible perspective and that I realize also that I'm not the main actor in the situation. I am uh, standing a little bit to the side, especially I'm not the party that has been over the centuries uh, injured. I wrote the book uh, out of experience of my own country being violated. Uh, so I could speak as a person who has been uh, been affected by violence. I can't quite speak in the same way in the here and the now, so I can simply offer this as my own take on Christian faith and my own reading of, of the Christian faith. And my sense would be uh, that 
we can come to something like more porous sense of identity. And porousness for me means boundaries are, are important to keep and important to therefore maintain. Boundaries define who we, who we are. If we erase all the boundaries, uh, we erase uh, identities. And, and identities uh, I, want to, I want to affirm. But I want to affirm also this kind of porousness, and certainly that's uh, that's very interesting question for um, uh, for immigration um, uh, politics. Uh, I would want to say that we can construe America as simply white America, and so we have to think about kind of global situation in which we find ourselves and think of us as being always already having been enriched by others and continued uh, to do that so that closing of, of the self, especially closing of the self to those who are who are weak and who are persecuted, seems to be so contrary, not just to American history, but also to who we as Christians are called to be to our neighbors. There is also, um, my sense is that a, a kind of politics of forgiveness that does not erase the wrongness that has happened, that does not deny it, that does not make light of it, that names it, but nonetheless, notwithstanding that, is willing to build uh, a community. That seems to me uh, profoundly Christian, and I would simply want to offer that as a, as a vision of the Christian faith that can be a build-bridging faith. I think one of the challenges that we have in today's environment, a step back from some of the immediacy of, of some of the issues, for instance, the issue of race, which is so incredibly long-standingly horrendous. But if you step um, just a little bit outside of that and, and think about the political division of which this racial issue is, is, is a part, and then ask, is there a way to build bridges? Is there a way to sympathetically enter into position of the other other person? Are we willing to do that at this point? I know that many people are not, but I will want to invite us to do just that, uh, not so as to compromise our positions, but so as to try to understand the other person as they want to be understood. And once we start on this road, maybe we'll find that we have more in common than we otherwise might have. And maybe uh, maybe some of the fears that we have of each other will be lessened, and we might be able to find a way into the future together. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me, there's a, there's a Hannah Arendt quote where she says that forgiveness is the only way to reverse the flow of history. Yeah, the, the, in some ways, you know, time does not run backwards. Uh, and that, that one of the reasons why we need forgiveness, she argued, is because time does not go backwards. And mm -hmm. the reversal of the flow of history, uh, which cannot happen, I think the only way that it can happen is through forgiveness. And the question is only whether how we deal with forgiveness, how we pursue forgiveness. And that's why I think that it's really essential to name the wrong as wrong. Mm -hmm. And even to have agreement on the wrong uh, that has been named. And then we can move toward forgiveness. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, 
Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. You've recently joined your name to uh, Christians Against Trumpism. You've spoken fairly critically about the president. And there was a tweet you posted recently where you made the comment that Trump is an embodiment of paganism. I'd love for you to just expand on what you meant by that and what that might say to evangelical support for him. And Yeah. So I was, I was reading um, a few, maybe a year, year or so ago, I was reading a book by uh, Alain de Benoit, uh, on being a pagan, and Benoit is uh, one of the key philosophers of the European of the new European right. This book on being a pagan is basically his uh, his credo. He, he advocates neoclassical paganism, not not kind of paganism of which uh, witches and incantations and things like that, but the classical paganism of the pre-axial time. And as I was looking at, at this book and, and I was looking, comparing with what, what was happening both in the, in the right in, in Europe, but also in the United States and looking at a kind of set of values that are guiding Trump both as a person, but also a, a, as a president, I thought, wow, th- this is almost exactly a set of pagan values. So for instance, he rejects kind of equality of all people in favor of superiority of some. Benoit does exactly the same, but one of the main points of the whole book is this deconstruction of, of, of equality in favor of a kind of super, sense of superiority, rejection of service to others in favor of one's own glory, rejection of sacrifice for others in favor of heroic victory. We can give examples of that easily. A rejection of humility in favor of prideful self-elevation, a rejection of primacy of common humanity in favor of a tribe, rejection of love of enemy in favor of vengeance, uh, rejection of God of all people in favor of God of all nations, which is uh, also, of course, the rejection of God who loves in favor of God who is vengeful, envious, mocking, cunning, violent. Some of those words come from, uh, from Nietzsche. And so, 
as I was observing this, I think, wow, the values that are values for, for Trump are, from Christian standpoint, actually vices. And some of them are pagan values. And then it occurred to me that actually it's even worse than just paganism. It's not fully accurate to say that Trump embodies pagan values because Trump is a modern individualist. And paganism, classical paganism, was, if you want, communitarian. Tribe was the most important thing, not individual. So the pagan, classical paganism extols heroes who sacrifice themselves on behalf of the tribe. Trump thinks that those who sacrifice themselves for others, soldiers who died in Europe, other battlefields, are suckers and losers. In classical paganism, person works for the good of the tribe. Trump, as he said also in the same kind of uh, setting, acts on the basis of principle, what's in it for me here? So kind Mm -hmm. of life is a deal, and that being principle of life that I do only what benefits me, I think that's that's below falling below the level of paganism itself. And that's what struck me as so strange that so many of my fellow Christians, some of them my friends, don't quite notice this incredible discrepancy or that they're not, if they notice, they're not bothered as much as, as I am. I, I kind of think Trump's God is my devil. Or Christianity's devil. <laughs> Christianity's devil is Trump's Trump's God. And what happened to our American evangelical Christianity? That large swaths of it are not more deeply disturbed by these values that are fundamentally at odds with the character of the Christian faith. That those values can be displayed in the in the public, advocated for in the public. I'm puzzled, and I'm, I'm wondering whether certain kind kind of evangelical paganism is not emerging. Yeah, you make a strong case. I, I mean, I think one of the criticisms that I hear often with regards to this is, is this a new thing that's emerged, or is this an, an unmasking of something that was there all along? You know, if you look at the last 40, 50 years of particularly of, of kind of conservative evangelicalism, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention and all this, you have these strong conservative movements and this strong kind of take back the seminaries and the institutions. And at the core of that movement, was it about power in the first place? And is Trump just unmasking that rather than him leading people astray? He's just, he's just not apologizing for making it about power. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that there there is that that element, at least way way I would read it. So that there are kind of set of important moral issues uh, and uh, that needed to be addressed, and all means are almost allowed in order to address those issues. So that means themselves, that is to say, how we handle power, are not part and parcel of the Christian moral concern, and that's I think one of the one of the big grave problems and issues. But I'm I'm just wondering whether this is, hasn't gotten uh, gotten to be to be uh, worse. Now, it would seem to me that the uh, that in the previous incarnation, especially when and Clinton was uh, in the office and uh, Southern Baptist uh, Convention character was a deep problem. The, the Clinton's character, not Clinton's kind of causes, simply. Mm-hmm. right. And suddenly we've come to the point where character does not matter. 
in politics that the kind of set of values that a person has are indifferent. So, for instance, that Trump could be considered um, a wonderful Christian, even uh, though he does not find any grave difficulty with admitting any wrong that he has uh, committed or confessing of sins. Now, how, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. So, so it would seem to me that Trump kind of accentuated it, but there's also something uh, that, that doesn't come from from um, so much so much moral majority side of things, but I think of the of the certain kind of Pentecostalism, kind of name it and claim it prosperity gospel that has gone kind of political, and yeah. that kind of power Pentecostalism which I very much differentiate from the Pentecostalism I grew up in, which was a holiness Pentecostalism. Almost pure power Pentecostalism is also what has come up, and that seemed to be to have been pagan before, but has now even even emerged very clearly in its consequences with Trump's presidency. How does the church heal from this moment or recover from it? Does it have to collapse in order to reform and rebuild? I think some of it will have to collapse. I think there there are a lot of healthy places, uh, obviously, but some places uh, will collapse. We've seen collapses of uh, of empires that were glitzy, um, but were corrupt uh, internally. Jim Baker was a good example in the previous uh, generation. Maybe even uh, Liberty University today. I mean, there's kind of uh, you can discover. It seems like there's kind of hollowness uh, there, and it's really not so much even the the, the problem that that actually people commit sin, right? It's that pretense of holiness when there's exactly otherwise happening, right? Mm. To to me, that seems like a call to step back and ask, what do we do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, Mm -hmm. I must say that I'm sometimes pessimistic. I'm sometimes pessimistic because I've come to believe that Jesus, as we have him portrayed in the gospels, have become a moral stranger to us, that we don't know what to do with him, like he belongs to some other planet, some other world in which we are not. Everything that mattered to him seems not to matter to us, and everything that matters to us as a culture seems not to have been important to him. You can go down the list of things, from nation to wealth to family to looks, Think about what we do in terms of looks, aesthetics of our own bodies. And I'm not talking about somebody else. I'm talking also also about myself. We spend time in front of the mirror that really seems important to us. We want to look uh, look cool, look decent. We want to project something with our clothing. So we spend an inordinate amount of time attending to the way in which we look. We have zero information about how Jesus looked. There was zero interest in his outward appearance. Don't just look at what I described, but also also compare what happens uh, at, in social media like Instagram, right? Where kind of curation of a certain image is what it is all about, and it's incredibly oppressive, and everybody experiences as, as, as such. Extraordinary time spent into that, which for Jesus meant zero, nothing. Yeah, it's remarkable. Then I end up being a little bit pessimistic, and I ask, oh, how do we return back? to the source. We, we've cut source to Jesus. We've, we've cut source to Christianity. First he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. 
Thanks for listening. If you like our show, please leave us a rating and a review wherever you're getting your podcasts. Cultivated is a production of Christianity Today. This episode was produced by me. It was edited by Mark Owens. Our theme song is by Roman Candle, and our music is by Dan Phelps. Special thanks for this episode to Evan Rosa. I'm excited about next week. We'll be hearing from a guest who's been on the show before, my friend Latifa Alatas. She'll talk about making art during a pandemic, about some projects she's working on now, and about what it was like to share with the Christian community the pain and heartache of a divorce. Don't miss it. We'll see you next week.